Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliet Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. Today, on June 1st, 2022, we're going to be doing something a little bit different on the podcast. I've collected questions from people of all ages about retirement and savings, which I've found to be tricky, especially at a young age. And if you're anything like me, you know next to nothing, or you think you know something and you don't. And when I asked some other people, I realized that even adults don't really know that much. So today we're going to get into all of that. And I'm excited to bring Jason Fickner on for the second time. He's the vice president and chief economist at the Bipartisan Policy Center, where he focuses on social security, federal tax policy, federal budget policy, retirement security, and much more. And that was already a lot of things to name. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back. First, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? You need to start saving today and you're already a day behind. Well, so let's just jump into that then. Um, as a young person, I it, saving for being old sounds really unappealing because honestly, I have a lot of life to live until then. So why should I start saving? Why am I a day behind? And when slash how should I start saving? Well, those are those are really good questions. Let's just unpack it. Uh, so one, the, always the question is, why should I start today when you're in college or just coming out of college and it's your first job and you've got all these other expenditures going on? You're, you're, you need to pay off potentially student loans. You got to pay for your rent. You want to buy maybe a new car. You want to go on travel and vacation and see friends. So all these competing interests and everything has opportunity costs and trade-offs, right? That's what we all know as economists. Everything has opportunity costs and trade-offs. The thing to understand, though, is that the earlier you start saving, the easier it becomes and the more years you have to compound interest. So just to give you an idea, uh, if you start saving, you know, when you're 21, you know, 22, right out of college, and you save $200 every month, just you don't increase it, you don't decrease it, just $200 every month, right? So you're talking about $2,400 a year. After 35 years, so when you start getting into your mid-50s, if you only had a 3% interest rate, you'd have $148,000. If you had a 6% interest rate, you'd have $286,000. But if you had a 12% compounded interest rate, you'd have $1.3 million. So imagine now being in your mid-50s at $1.3 million. All of a sudden, your retirement looks a lot more affordable, and you still have many more years left in which you can work and save. And you're never going to get 12% annual growth rate a year. You're probably going to get eight to nine. And in some years, they'll be down. and some years, they'll be higher. This is the way the market works. But the sooner you start saving, the faster your money grows. And it looks hard at first because you know a 10% return on $10 is $1. And that doesn't seem great. But a 10% return on a million dollars is $100,000. And that looks great. So when you start saving younger, and then you get older, you start seeing that compound interest and those investments accumulate that accumulation leads to greater growth. And all of a sudden you get to the point where you're my age and I'm, I'm now 50, so I'll, I'll out myself, I'm now 50. 
Um, and I, I'm doing pretty well. Um, I, I am one of those 401k millionaires out there uh, because I did start saving right with my first job out of college. And I did it in a 401k plan. Uh, I had a government uh, job, so I had a government matching program, and a lot of employers now match for their 401k or 403b plan, which is a, a nonprofit version of 401k. And when I first started, it was a few hundred dollars here, which turned into a few thousand. And, and now, 30 years later, um, you know, it's a multi million dollar account. And I'm looking at having a much more, hopefully, a much better financially secure retirement because I started saving early. And, and, and that's why you need to start today. And the reason we make the joke about why you a day late is because, you know, the, the best savers are those who start out with their lemonade stand when they were kids. And that creates great habits. And the other thing to think about why we want people to start today is, again, it's habit forming. This is the behavioral insights. Um, you get into the habit of saving, saving, you like saving. That's a good thing to start doing. And that creates long-term um, benefits, long-term habits. Uh, we are humans were creature of habits, whether it's, you know, biting your nails, whether it's exercising, eating, how you do homework, we're all habit forming. Starting off saving early is important. Um, and you asked me, what should you start doing? So the next question is, yeah, Jason, I just got my first job. I got a lot of things to do. So let me do five things to start um, with your first job. So the first thing, make a budget. And, and maybe, you know, we should tell Congress to do that too and make a budget and stick to it. But this is one of the hardest things people don't think about. Like sit down, go through your expenses. What are you paying a month in your rent? What are you paying when it comes to your healthcare costs? If you have premiums for health insurance, what are you paying if you have a car payment? What are you paying for food, groceries, utilities, et cetera? Put that down and see what you make. And then that difference comes out to what your discretionary income is. And then figure out how much of that you can start saving. But make a budget. People who budget and plan do a lot better saving and investing and being financially secure in the long run and people who don't. The second one, which you talked about earlier, is don't wait to save and invest. Just start doing it. If you have a job, see if your employer has a 401k plan or a 403d plan, start putting money in. You don't have to put the maximum, just start doing something. If your employer offers a matching program, maximize your contributions to maximize the match. That's basically the only thing about free money we can find as an economist is an employer matching program. Mm -hmm. The question comes in, how much should you save? Some people say, save 10%, some say 20, some say 30. I'm gonna tell you to start saving something. I don't want you to people to forgo and have a miserable life because they're saving for a future. I want them to enjoy the present and the future. But that's part of making a budget. So my, my focus is that I would tell people, start saving 10%. If you can save 10% of your income, you're doing pretty well, and then start ratcheting up over time. When you get a raise, an increase in, in uh, salary or a new job, up the contribution, but try to save 10% to start and work your way up to 20 or 25. Uh, the fourth thing is start an emergency fund. This is going to seem weird because cash doesn't pay a lot of interest, but it's good to be sort of self-insured. Have some cash. So when you go back to that first, the first thing about making a budget, let's say your expenditures are $3,000 a month. You should have three months cash on hand. That's $9,000. Uh, put it in your checking account, put it in a low interest savings account, but put it in there and don't touch it. That's your emergency fund. If something comes up, you lose a job, you get sick, something happens, you've now got three months of cash in which you can pay for expenditures without reading your retirement account, without going back to your parents, without hitting credit cards. That is a financially smart decision and also has psychological benefits because you know you'll have less stress that'll make you healthier. So start saving an emergency fund. And the fifth thing is pay off your debt. And that goes back to making a budget. 
when you start making your budget, you should have debt payments as part of that budget, assuming you have debt. Uh, pay off your student loans. You don't have to pay them off early. Pay the payments, but make sure you're paying them off. Um, don't get in arrears. Don't stretch it out for 40 or 50 years. Stay on the terms and don't get into credit card debt. It's way too easy to get into credit card debt these days. You just put the credit card down. It's a lot easier than taking money out of your wallet and seeing the money's going. And we have this like cashless economy nowadays where it's all digital. But make a budget. Don't wait to save and invest. Save at least 10% of your income, but start working it up. Start an emergency fund, three months cash to pay, three months of cash to pay, three months of expenditures, and then start paying off your debt in a reasonable, moderate, consistent manner. That's how you'd start. And we'll come back to a lot of those points. But first, you were mentioning that you can have up to 12% growth or something eight to nine percent rate. I'm pretty sure my savings account has like a zero point zero something growth rate. So what what type of savings are you talking about? What are the different ways to save? That's a really good question. Thank you for bringing that up. So with an emergency fund, it should be in something that's not going to lose its principal. And that's a savings account. So for the cash you want to keep on hand for emergencies, which doesn't really have tax consequences. You can take money out of the checking and savings account without having to create a tax bill. That should be in cash. And that should be in a checking account or savings. Just put it in there. Uh, some people put it in the money market, but it needs to be liquid. Something you can get out quickly if you need it for an emergency. But now you start going about, wait a minute, I want to save for retirement. I want to save for a house. Uh, I want to have that compounding interest accrue that is not less than 1%. I want better than three. I want better than five. You want something that's in that six to 10 range. And that's the stock market. So when you're younger, you can take on a lot more risk because you have more time in which to recover from downturns. And we've recently had a downturn. We've seen the market go down because of potential concerns about a recession. So that the NASDAQ, I think right now, is still down over 20% over the course of the year to date. And But over the long run, you know, markets go up, markets go down. Over the long run, they tend to go up. And so the market's been averaging, I think, roughly around 9% per year on average. That's where you get your long-term rate of return. So when markets go down, some people call it a buying opportunity. Uh, the point is not to panic and stay the course and keep your consistent savings habits. Uh, and you do dollar cost averaging, or if you have extra cash and want to buy when market dips, that's what a lot of people do when they have extra cash. But that's where your money should go is in the market. And when you get to an employer that has a retirement plan, then people say, well, what do I put it in? Do I, Jason, I put it all into Bitcoin? The answer to that is no. Uh, do I put it all into Google stock? The answer is no. If you're just starting out, keep it simple, right? There's an old um, acronym, K-I-S-S, FIS, people, keep it simple, stupid. There are things that are now called target date funds. There are mutual funds or exchange-traded funds that are based on the age at which you are supposed to retire. Uh, and you can, you can change it if you want to retire at 60, 65, or 70. But the idea is if you're at 20, you know, 22 today, so I'm, you know, I'm 50. If I want to retire in 20 years at 72, I'd have a 2040 or 2042 target date fund. And what that fund does is it actually rebalances over time every year based on your risk tolerance for age. And these are these standard rules of thumbs. And they're, so they're not always perfect, but for most people, they work out quite well. If you're starting out younger and you're in your 20s, these target date funds will be more heavily invested in equities, stocks, than they will fixed income or bonds. Uh, but those are more volatile, but over time, you're going to have a greater rate of return. As you get closer to retirement, say age 15 above, that balance keeps shifting. It gets more towards equity and bonds, which give you fixed income in retirement 
and away from the more volatile stock market equity uh, funds. And so it's really easy. And most people today just put their money in a target date fund. I have a lot of my retirement money in target date funds because they're self-balancing. It's easy. I'd have to be tracking the market all the time. Uh, it's low cost. Um, that's where I would start doing. So if you have an employer with a uh, retirement plan, a defined contribution plan, talk to them and see what their target date fund offerings are and find one that fits your potential target date retirement. And I would start investing that to start. That's a good way to be. And what if I, I don't know, I think about my future and I can't see myself not working and that will probably change. But what happens if I'm planning on never retiring? Should I still save? So, so the answer to that is yes. And, and I think the idea to think about here is think about risk. So uh, think about the upside and downside risk. So Julie, if you told me today, you know what? I'm going to keep working until I'm 75, 80, or I'm never going to stop working. I love working so much. I can't imagine retirement. I don't even know what that means. I'd be bored. Forget it. I'm not going to do it. All right. So you're just going to keep working and not save. The downside risk is you get to the point where you can't work. You get a disability. And right now, for somebody your age, there is about a one in five chance you'll have a disability over some course of your lifetime that will prevent you from working. That's 20%. Not 80, but that's still 20. That's significant. Uh, the downside is you won't be able to afford your, your lifestyle or be able to work, and you'll be in poverty. Take the flip side. You still continue to work until the day you die. And that could be a long life of 85, 90. You're constantly working, but you save. What does that mean now? What's the risk? Well, you have too much money. Bummer. Uh, you, can now, you can now afford to do a lot more things. You want a nicer house, a bigger house. You want to travel first class on vacations. If you have kids and you want to give your kids money, you can do that. If you want to be a charitable uh, you know, philanthropist, you can do that. But again, the whole idea when thinking about savings is you're trying to mitigate some risk. The risk is you don't want to run out of money in retirement. You want to still have a lifestyle which you are comfortable with. You want to be happy in retirement. You don't want to have a retirement, or even if you're not thinking about retirement, you don't want to have your older, elder years be impoverished. You want to be able to enjoy them. And, and that's the cost of life cycle. And that's why when people say, I can't afford to save, you can't afford not to save today. But you don't want to put yourself in poverty today just to have a secure retirement. There is a balance. And that's why it's important to go back to that first point, make a budget and start early. And that's how you start having it. So you should start saving today because, again, the upside is you'll just have more money to know to do with. And that seems like a good problem to have. But the downside is if you don't start saving, you may be impoverished in poverty uh, in old age. And that's never good. So what about a Roth IRA? I don't when I was in high school, this is the account that all of the uh, we had this mandatory, like, learn how to save course thing. Um, and they were like, oh, a Roth IRA, a Roth IRA. But what is it? How is it different from a 401k? Should I use that instead? What do I do? Okay. So first of all, the answer, the first answer is it depends on your, on your goals and your taxes. So a traditional uh, retirement account that I've been talking about generally is a tax deferred retirement account. What that means is you put money in before Uncle Sam takes its money out. Uh, so if you, if you make $100 in wages and you put $100 into the market uh, in a traditional 401k account, all $100 goes in. You don't pay tax on it today but it grows tax deferred. And when you retire and take it out, you do pay taxes on that account that would pay what would be your tax rate at the time of retirement. So a traditional retirement account, a traditional IRA 401k, no tax today, 
but tax when you retire. So what you're trying to do here is you're arbitraging your tax rate. When you are younger, you may have a lower tax rate than when you are older. But if you're in your mid-peak earning years, your tax rate may be higher today and lower in the future. So if your tax rate's higher today, you want the deferral, so you pay less tax when you retire. So what's a Roth? A Roth is after-tax money going into an account that is not taxed when you retire. So the whole thing is it's a tax arbitrage. So if for, for young people, the reason they tell you that a Roth may be better off is that you are usually, when you're starting off, in a lower tax bracket. You're not making a lot of money, so you're not in the higher tax brackets, where you might be in a higher tax bracket when you retire. So a Roth, goes, uh, a Roth is post-tax money, but you don't get taxed when you retire. So whatever you have in there is yours when you retire. The government doesn't take any money away from it. Um, and because it's a lower tax today, you're not missing out on the deferral. But when you start getting older and you make more money, the deferral might be more important, as is the tax break today, and you might want to switch to a traditional. This is why it depends. Um, some employers don't offer a Roth uh, IRA, some do, but it is worth, it's worth sitting down and figuring out what your tax rate is. The higher your tax rate today, the more you want to have a traditional 401k type plan. The lower your tax rate is today, the more you want to have a Roth. You explain it better than a public school teacher. Good job. Well, I'm, glad to, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, but, but, but keep in mind, from an investment standpoint, there is no difference. Uh, what I mean by that is if you want to pull out an Excel spreadsheet and put in $100 today and grow it by 10% over the next 50 years and whatever that number comes out to be, and then tax it, tax the entire amount at 20%, you'll get a net, a net number. You take that $100, you take out $20 today, so you have $80 left, and you grow it by the same amount of time and interest rate, the net number is also the same. So the only difference between an IRA and a Roth at the end of the day are the tax rates at the beginning and at the end. Cool. That It makes a lot of sense now. So then where does an HSA, a health saving account, fit into all of it? Because I've heard this thrown around by adults and I found out that people use it for savings instead of its intended use, which I'm pretty sure is healthcare savings. Uh, so a health savings account is another tax-deferred savings vehicle, which is trying to allow people to put money aside before tax to pay for health expenses. So you can use them to pay for glasses, medical care, prescription drugs, et cetera. The, the kicker, though, is that there's only a certain amount. You, if you don't use it, you lose it. And so there's some uh, limits on how much you can roll over as a savings. So the, the ones who do their HSA the best are those who have budgeted and can actually budget their health care. So if you know every year you're going to buy a new pair of glasses and the glasses cost you $300, but you know you're going to the dentist, the dentist is going to cost you X. You can put that money aside in HSA, and what you get out of that is the tax break. So if you're in the you know, 25% tax bracket, then you, know, you can put $100 in, and instead of having to use after-tax money, uh, which they take, you have 75, so you're basically buying $100 worth of value where you would have been able to pay 75 before without having the HSA. But there's, again, there's rollover considerations. I, I think HSAs are great, but you really need to be able to plan for your healthcare, where I think it becomes a lot more important for people as those who have families and have higher medical costs that are predictable. Again, kids are expensive. Families are more expensive than singles. Um, I, I would not necessarily recommend an HSA for someone just starting out uh, out of college in their first job. Your healthcare costs are likely to be low unless you have conditions which you know you have predictable expenditures the prescriptions, et cetera. And then you can budget how much that would be and put that in HSA to get the tax break. But, but, but that's the difference. 
Um, and so if you think about an HSA and you're younger, I would talk to a financial professional to have them walk you through the pros and cons and make sure they have you budgeted properly so that you do get the maximum tax benefits and don't lose out on any money. If I'm going to invest in my retirement, I would want to know what it would look like. Are there approaches that I should take through saving throughout my life, like keeping money more liquid versus in a retirement account in different percentages at different times or being more aggressive at certain points or more conservative in saving and investing and all of that? So the first rule of investing is to have a diversified portfolio, right? Don't put all your money in crypto. Don't put all your money in Amazon. You want to diversify. And that's where I go back to the target date funds, because those things diversify by equities, S&P 500, NASDAQ, they'll have some uh, you know, fixed income and they'll, they'll rebalance over time as you get older. This goes into your risk question. You know, you can take more risk when you're younger because you have more time to um, recover from any sort of market downturns than you do when you're older and make you the income right away when you're older and close to retirement. So that's when you take on more risk early, you take on less risk when you're old. How much to save in and out of retirement as a percentage is a really good question. And that really depends on people's financial needs. There's not a one size fits all. So I don't, I don't like this, you know, all should go into your retirement, all should go into emergency savings. You got to figure out what's right for you. And, and this goes back to that very first point again, not having a budget. Because when you start with a budget, you can sit down and figure out, here's what I'm making per month. Here's my take-home pay. Here's what has to go for rent and utilities, food, et cetera. And then what's my other bucket? This is called mental accounting, by the way. Someone wants to Google mental accounting. You can see how behavioral scientists talk about this, where there's a bucket for your rent, a bucket for your utilities. And then you've got various buckets for savings, for travel, for entertainment, et cetera. And it helps people think and plan for savings and spending. And when you're starting out, you want to have some liquidity. And that's the emergency savings. So what I, what I suggest people do is, is put again, make sure they have three months of cash on hand. Uh, and then once they hit that value, they can start being more uh, risk-taking with some of their other savings. Uh, they can put more money in the market if they want to. They can set a separate account they want to save for a house. Uh, if they're trying to save for a wedding, they can do that as well. But they're sort of prioritizations. And that first priority in some ways is emergency savings. And then you start doing the, uh, the retirement. Then you go towards house, et cetera. Um, but that's how I'd start. And then, you know, I, I look at my portfolio. And so again, just because I do it doesn't mean it's the best for everybody. So you have to think about your own personal needs. But I basically have right now about a 50-50 split of my uh, assets, not including the house, but just um, equity assets um, that are in the market. Half are in retirement accounts, half are in regular brokerage accounts, uh, which are taxable. Uh, so if I make any trades in those, I've got to pay taxes on the trades, the capital gains taxes on them. Uh, if you do something inside a retirement account that you don't have to worry about taxes until you actually use the money and take it out in retirement. But in a taxable account, uh, you do have to worry about taxes. So I do about a 50-50. Uh, part is because I do want to have some liquidity and I do want to have some ability to take money out of the market if I need to without having to worry about um, like a 10% penalty to take money out of your retirement accounts before you're 59 and a half. So that's just been me. Some people would suggest, you know, you do a 70-30 split. But, uh, but again, the idea is to make sure you have some sort of split so you do have access to liquid cash if you need it, liquid equities if you need it, and of course, then you lock up stuff for retirement and a retirement account. And you just have to figure out what's the right one for you. The key thing is have a budget and start doing it. And there are a lot of rules that get thrown around to talk about how you should save and allocate your income that are supposed to make things like saving easier or less, I don't know, less thought requiring. Um, 
Something that I learned in high school was the 50-30-20 rule, which I don't remember what the 30 is, but the 50 is your needs. I'm pretty sure the 30 is, I guess, like whatever's left over. And then the 20 is 20% of your income should be saved. And there's also there's the 4% rule. So what are common rules that you see people following and should we follow them? Another nuanced question requires a nuanced answer, right? So one size does not fit all. And these rules were put out to make it easier for people to understand complicated things. So let me give you one rule I do like, uh, and it's called the rule of 72. And you're probably going, wait, I have not heard of the rule of 72. So the rule of 72 is how much is a rule to allow you to figure out quickly how long it'll take to double your money depending on an interest rate. So if the interest rate is 10%, you divide it into 72. That means you're, you're, if you get a 10% annual rate of return, your money will double in 7.2 years. It's a 7% rate. You divide 7 into 72 and you get 10 years. So the rule of 72 is a quick, easy thing to figure out how long it takes you to double your money based on an interest rate. And, and I think this is where it comes in because for a long period of time, the markets were averaging you know, between 9 and 10% a year. You can double your money in, 10, in, in 7 years. That's pretty good. And that's why again, you want to start saving early. Now the question you're going to is this 50, 30, 20 is how much of your, your budget should be going to expenses? And, and this is where if someone sits down with me and says, Jason, I've done what you said. I've gone through and did rule number one. I did a budget, right? So you, your first task did a budget. And I have found out that I'm, you know, I'm bringing home $4,000 a month. So it's $48,000 a year. And my rent is $3,800. Well, guess what? A higher percentage of your take-home pay is going to rent than it should. That's a large percentage. You need to bring that down. And this is where those rules come in. It's trying to help people budget and make sure they're not overspending on certain areas. I don't know whether the third, the 50, 30, 20 is the right one or not. But again, when you start going through your budget, if you find that there are areas that you, again, you just don't have the income to save, that might mean you're spending too much somewhere else. And, and the way I would start thinking about this again is I, I think people should start by trying to save 10% of their income. So now you can use that 10% wallet off for savings. And now you've got 90% left to play with. Right, so 90%, how much of that now is locked up for expenses that you really don't have much control over? They're fixed. Um, and then you start thinking, is that, is that too high or too low? Am I comfortable? Do I have enough flexibility then to whether an emergency or travel or you know, vacations or to go out and do dinners out and have some fun? If you find you're not able to do the things you want to do, then you need to find ways to cut back. That might mean that whatever percentage you're spending on fixed expenses needs to be changed. My mom started saving really late in the game for a bunch of reasons. Um, one of them being she moved here and moving to a new country. She wasn't sure she was going to stay. Like, who knows? Why would she want to save for retirement if she didn't even know where she was going to be living next year? Right. Um, and there are a lot of people like that. And she always says now that she wants to ensure that she won't be a burden for us. But she started saving pretty late in the game. So what's the best advice you have for people like my mom who have started saving late but want to be ready for retirement? So you can do, it's basically called catch-up savings. So if, if you're starting late, so if you're not in your 20s, but you're now, like I, again, I'm 50. So if you're starting at 50, you know, I've already lost, you would have lost 30 years of compounding growth, which means you've got to save a lot more than 10%. You've got to start saving maybe 50% of your income for and, and, and this is where it becomes really challenging. It's still to make tough choices. Again, there's no such thing as a free lunch. There are opportunity costs. 
Um, but our retirement savings policy does allow for things that are called catch-up contributions. So again, you go back to your employer plan we've been talking about, whether you're doing a Roth or you're doing a traditional 401k, uh, you're only allowed to uh, contribute a certain percentage or a certain limit per year. That limit increases for those over age 50. They do what they call catch-up contributions. So there's a tax advantage for those over 50 to make additional contributions to savings because they realize people might not have started out early enough. So a suggestion would be to people to consider whether they can afford, if they're over 50, putting more money into their retirement savings to catch up for the lost savings they didn't do when they were younger. And they might be thinking, well, how much do I need in retirement? And, and this is kind of a, a tricky question too, because people always ask, what's your retirement number? You know, do you need $1 million? Do you need $2 million? Is Social Security going to be there for me? Is it going to be enough for me? You've got to think holistically. And this is where some of those rules of thumb come back in, not because they're always right, but they help you think about whether you're on track or not. And so the, you know, some of the rules of thumb is by the time you're age 30, you want to have saved up the equivalent of one year of your gross salary. So if you're making you know, $50,000 a year at the time you're 30, you should have saved $50,000. And that can include what you've got saved in an emergency fund, plus what you're saving in your retirement or what you saved in brokerage account altogether. By the time you're 40, it's supposed to be three times your annual income. That'd be if you're making $50,000 and $150,000 a year. At age 50, six times your income. By age 60, which is where you're getting close to retirement, it's eight times your income. So the reason we base it on income is that people basically have a budget constraint and they spend up to the budget constraint. The more they make, the more they spend. They buy bigger houses, bigger cars, more expensive cars, vacations. You want to make sure you have some sort of standard of life and quality of life that's consistent with what your pre-retirement years were going into retirement. And so we basically peg it to income. Um, but again, if you were making $100,000 a year by the time you're 60, you should have $800,000 saved. By 67, you'd have 10 times saved, which would be a million dollars. So this is how you start thinking about it. And for those who haven't started saving earlier, they've got to save more and catch up because they're going to have to sacrifice something. Maybe they don't buy a bigger house. Uh, maybe they don't buy a new car as often, um, but those are choices. And again, everything has opportunity costs and trade-offs. Everything's scarce. Uh, but that's what people need to start doing if they haven't started saving their cost saving. And how, okay, so I'm kind of young to be thinking about a house, or am I? Um, so what about like, I want a car, or I'm going to go to college, or at some point I'm going to live in a house or have kids. Those are big expenses. How do you start saving for those sorts of things? This is where I would talk about, again, I, I would use the term mental accounting, um, but it's considering everything a bucket. So let's say you go through your budget and in, in your budget, you decide that I can, you can save 10 or 15% of your income. And that's what you have for, for all savings. So of that 10 or 15%, you take a certain amount, you put it towards emergency savings to start building that. You take a certain percent to put it towards your long-term retirement savings. You might take some and then put it aside for a house or for an education fund or for a house loan. That's how you start doing it. And again, savings doesn't, the, the accumulated benefit doesn't happen overnight. The initial constraint, the initial uh, behavioral insight, the, the initial hurdle to overcome has to happen today, but the benefits accrue over time. So it's not going to happen overnight. And this is where you have to stick with it. And over time, because of compounding and the consistent nature of savings. Again, I would make sure people would save consistently. Do it, you know, every time they get a paycheck, money should be going into a savings account and, and as it's budgeted. Over time, it starts building up and then eventually you have what you need to make your, your lifestyle choices, whether it's for the education, for a house, 
or for retirement. You just got to start. And, and, and think about this as buckets. How much do you want to put towards a house? How much do you want to put towards a wedding? How much do you want to put towards kids or college education? How much do you want to put towards you know, house savings, travel funds, et cetera? It's all got to be part of you know, thinking about it as, a, as mental accounting. And for things that are far off, but not as far off as retirement, what sort of account should I be using for that? It depends when you need the money. So for anything in which you need the money, say in less than 12 months, keep it in cash. And I know some people say you don't make much on cash, but you don't lose money on cash either, except for inflation. Uh, so I think cash is safe. Uh, there's an old saying that cash is king. It allows you to actually do things when markets go down that other people can't do. So within 12 months, cash. Uh, for things longer than that, think about short-term versus long-term needs. Uh, if you're tying it up for between one year and two years, maybe you put it into a certificate of deposit that pays you a high interest rate. Uh, if it's longer term, three plus, look at the stock market. For retirement, you definitely want it in the market. And that's a combination of equities and fixed income that'll rebalance over time. But it really is your needs. Like if you're, if you're coming out of college and you want to buy a house at 30, you can put that money in the market. So then paying off debts, because I'm guessing like I already like in college, I know so many people, myself included, who are dealing with paying exorbitant amounts for this education and people who I know people who are still paying it off years and years and years afterwards. So how do we factor in paying off debts when we're saving? Um, And then how about credit cards? Like, obviously, you mentioned how hard it is to remember that you need to pay off your credit card. But how does that play into the overall saving spending budget? Yeah. And so this is, you know, and again, when you go through your budget, uh, if you have, let's just start with credit card debt first. Uh, so credit card debt is, is generally the ones that carry the highest interest rates. And so the ones that you're better off paying off quickly. And so if someone says, should I forego my retirement account to pay off credit card debt? Yeah, I get it. I'm not going to argue with you, but you got to pay off the credit card debt. Uh, I still think people are better off doing some amount of savings just so they get into the habit and it becomes routine. The more it becomes automated, the more it'll continue over time. But it is very important to pay down high interest rate debt very quickly, as quickly as possible. And that's credit card debt. Obviously, there's an old joke that the sometimes the best way to win is not to play the game. Uh, that's credit cards. Um, they are a good tool to help us facilitate purchases. I don't have to carry cash around, uh, but I pay my credit cards off every month. I don't carry a balance. And this goes back into a budget, making sure that you only spend what you need to and that you spend within your, your means, live within your means, don't go over. Sometimes you might have to for an emergency, but that's when the emergency savings fund should kick in. So you use that as opposed to a credit card. When thinking about education debt, and this even goes to a mortgage uh, debt, you want to make sure your debt payments will fit into your budget. So when you're doing your budget and you get your take-home pay, a certain percentage to, should go towards... Um, fixed overhead. Uh, and that's rent. That also includes debt facility, debt payments. And that would include your student loans. You have credit card debt, those as well. Uh, pay those off and make sure it's part of the budget. You have to, again, budget for it. And the, once you start seeing where your money's going and how much money you have, that also is a tool which changes people's behavior. Sitting down, again, sitting down and doing a budget is a really good exercise. Uh, it shows you how much you have coming in and it also shows how much you have going out. And once you start realizing that, you start questioning additional expenditures. Do I really want to buy this extra jacket? Do I really want to do X, Y, and Z? I don't mean that to make sure people don't have fun. You want to have a good life and have fun. You're working hard, but you also want to make sure you make right decisions. And the best way to make 
better informed decisions is to be informed about your budget. And that's why that's always the first rule we put out. Uh, but debt payments are part of the budget. Think about a plan to, if you have debt to pay it down. Student loan debt, think about income-based repayment plans. Uh, those are really good options right now if, if you're qualified to do so that allow you to pay a certain percentage of your income uh, towards your student loans after 10 years. If you make all the consistent payments, the rest is forgiven. Uh, look into your options. Those are great ways to make sure you can afford the debt that you have and to pay off. I want to go sit down and make a budget now, but I also am kind of afraid to look at my bank account because I am a college student. Um, so what age should I retire? What is the retirement age for Social Security? I'm pretty sure there are two different ones. Which one should we take? So the Social Security, the, the retirement is also changing, right? So people, I, th I think the time in which we think about retirement as, you know, you turn 65, the employer, the only employer which you've ever worked for your entire life throws you a party, gives you a defined benefit pension plan on a gold watch, and you go sit on a golden pond, is done. Uh, retirement means a lot of different things to different people. It, it may mean that you work part-time. It may mean you don't work for money. You need things you enjoy. It may mean having different stages where you take time off uh, to do things you want to do, like travel and come back and do other types of work. It may mean you work, to your point earlier, you may never stop working. You may just change your lifestyle and not do a nine to five, or maybe you do. Um, you know, it, you go back to school and get a PhD in your 60s. There's a lot of things you can do. So when we start talking about retirement, I think we have to understand that our generations have now changed what retirement is. A lot of us have different jobs throughout our career. Again, my my dad worked for Chrysler Motors, you know, the car company for 30 years. My mom worked for a fitness company, the same one for 35 years. I think I've already had eight or nine or 10 jobs already in my, you know, 30 years here in DC. Uh, different employers, different retirement plans. We're not going to have the same job uh, for our careers. And that sort of changes what we think about when it comes to retirement. I may not completely retire. I may go back and teach part-time. So, so this is something about what a retirement mean, but you brought up Social Security. So Social Security benefits can be claimed anywhere between age 62 and 70. And it's good to think about this as the minimum benefit age of 62 and the maximum benefit age of age 70. You can claim anywhere in between them. But the formula is supposed to be actually neutral. So assume someone lives to an average age of 85. If they claim at 70, they'll only get benefit checks for 15 years, again, assuming they die at 85 but they get a higher amount for those 15 years. Where if they claim at 62, they now have eight more years of getting checks, so they get a lower monthly check, so that on a net present value basis, it's the same. But some people live to be greater than the average age. Some people live less than. If you think about this from insurance value, you are better off delaying claiming if you can afford to, because if you live longer, those higher monthly checks will be there for the rest of your life and be there when you need them for maybe healthcare needs or inflation, because Social Security is inflation protected. So I always suggest people, if they can, they delay claiming as late as possible, up to age 70. There's no point in delaying past that. Some people can't afford to wait, though. They, they can't work past 62 and they need those benefits. If you need them today, you take them today, uh, as early as 62. But if you can delay claiming, that is one of the best ways to make money uh, for your retirement is to delay claiming sort of a higher monthly benefit check. But the, what they call the normal retirement age, which really isn't normal, but that's what Social Security calls it, is going to be 67 for you and for me. And for people who you know are, are younger and listening to this. Now the age may change if they do social security reform, they may index it for longevity and might go up to 70. Uh, but social security should be part of your retirement discussion. Uh, we talk about the three-legged stool of retirement, the three legs of a stool that makes it stand and sturdy. 
are your personal savings an employer plan, which could be a defined contribution plan that you're saving in their saving too as well, and Social Security. Those are the three legs of a stable retirement. Now, if anyone of those is wobbly, the stool wobbles. So Social Security will be there in some fashion. Just don't expect it to be everything for you or to be nothing. Just know that it's part of it and you should save to make sure that you have Social Security as part of your needs, but not for all of it, and then save for the rest. Right now, I'm going to plug our episode on Social Security. If you have any more questions about Social Security, go give that a listen because it is super informative. Um, Before we wrap up, I have one question that I should have asked earlier. Where is a 401k? Can I see it in my bank account? Where is it? Like we talked about in the other episode, my Social Security is not a Social Security bank account with my name on it. So what, where is my 401k? What is my 401k or whatever other account? Gotcha. So people always ask, why is it called a 401k? It's because that's the section of the internal revenue code that describes the rules of what it is. So if you were to Google like the internal revenue code and go section 401, you'll see K talks about retirement plans. 403B is for nonprofit retirement plans. So that's where this comes from and why we have the nomenclature, the shorthand. That's where the law comes from, where you see it. So if you were to establish one, uh, your employer has a record keeper uh, and a plan sponsor and has a broker. So for example, uh, the Bipartisan Policy Center, we have our 4013B, which is the plan for nonprofits, through Vanguard. So I can log into Vanguard and I can see how much money is going to my Vanguard account with each payroll deposit and what my employer matches. So Vanguard has my 403B. When I was at Johns Hopkins University, uh, TIAA managed the, all the accounts, but we had an option where we wanted to put it. We could put it in TIAA, Fidelity, Vanguard. There was probably a few others, T. Rowe Price. So they're basically held in brokerage accounts. So if you're starting one up, your employer probably has one you have to follow. Uh, so again, they might have already picked out Fidelity, Vanguard, T. Rowe Price. Uh, you know, who knows? Uh, if you're doing your own, you, know, you can do a self-employment one or you're doing your own Roth, you can pick. You can put it in E-Trade, Fidelity, Vanguard. You can shop around uh, and see which one has the best services for your needs. But, but that's where it is. So they're in financial services organizations. That's where you would find your retirement. Awesome. Great. So to wrap up, what is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Yeah, that's always a good question to ask. Uh, I think there was a point in time where I believed that if I just made $30,000 a year, I'd be fine for the rest of my life. And I remember that was in my high school junior year when I was taking an econ class. Uh, and again, I'm old. I graduated college, or, sorry, high school in 1989. So it's been 1988. And I thought making 30 grand a year is be enough for the rest of my life. It's not. And why is that? Because you have inflation, you have different needs, uh, you want more things as you get older. And as your income grows, so does your budget constraint. You want to buy more things with it. And you realize that when you are 50, your expenses are a lot different than when you are 16 years old. <laughs> yeah, a new skateboard doesn't cut it. <laughs> Once again, I'd like to thank my guests for their time and insight, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.